Welcome everybody to our ongoing nightclub interview series where my guest today is the astronaut, author, and humanitarian Ron Guerin. We show a number of clips from Ron's remarkable life as a fighter pilot and international space station inhabitant. Then we talk about the overview effect in its implementation as orbital perspective. We talk about how evolution itself is defined by increased perspectives as we go from egocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric. Ron shares the importance of Plato's allegory of the cave in his life before turning to the topic of fear and how to work with it, how darkness is often the source of growth, and how the film technique of dolly zooming is a powerful metaphor for holding multiple perspectives. Ron shares that we truly are at an inflection point in human history, and seeing what's really going on is so central to our survival. Ron's view, really, for me, is tremendously inspirational, completely resonant with the perennial traditions and the wisdom traditions, fundamentally proclaiming we have so much more power than we think. With every thought, with every word and deed, we can, in fact, help this world. So join me in conversation with this truly amazing individual. Hey, welcome everybody to our ongoing nightclub interview series where I have a, a wonderful opportunity to introduce you to a new friend of mine, Ron Guerin, who we recently became buddies here in the Boulder area. And I can't tell you how excited I am to share his truly remarkable story with you. It's breathtaking, literally. So as usual, I'll start with a short official bio. And then because uh, Ron's story is so compelling in imagery and perspective is such a central part of it, I'm gonna show a little bit of a clip, a video clip, just to give you a greater sense of what this remarkable individual has done and who he is. So former, uh, former NASA astronaut and highly decorated combat fighter, Ron Guerin racked up 178 days in space and more than 71 million miles in 2,842 orbits between tours on the U.S. space shuttle, the Russian Soyuz spacecraft, and the International Space Station. During his time in space, Ron conducted four spacewalks in support of the International Space Station construction and maintenance. Prior to those space journeys, he lived and conducted research on the bottom of the ocean in the world's only undersea research lab, Aquarius. Before reaching the summit of his career, Ron, a former test pilot and graduate of the US Naval Test Pilot School, taught hundreds of elite fighter pilots how to up their game as a flight instructor at the prestigious United States Air Force Fighter Weapons School, the Air Force version of Top Gun. He is the author of the critically acclaimed books, The Orbital Perspective, the just released Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution, and the upcoming Railroad to the Moon. A serial social entrepreneur, Ron is celebrated not just for his research in space, but also for his humanitarian contribution to life on Earth. And so Andy, if we can show that first clip, now's the time to do it. July 20th, 1969. At some level, I realized that we had just become a different species. We were a species no longer confined to our planet. And I wanted to be a part of that group of explorers. That, I think, started me on, on a journey of curiosity. I think it started me on a, a lifelong journey to be able to fulfill that dream of, of one day flying in space. Bill Anders, who took the famous uh, Earthrise photograph said, we went all this way to explore the moon and what we 
discovered in the process was the Earth. I remember when I looked out the window, I was, I was hit with this sense of extreme gratitude. Now, gratitude for the opportunity to see the planet from that vantage point, and gratitude for the gift of the planet that we've been given. I mean, it is just absolutely, indescribably, breathtakingly beautiful. I'm on this space station that was built by 15 different nations that somehow found a way to set aside our differences and work together and build probably the most complicated, complex structure ever built and, and build it in space. Imagine what we could do if we could take that same level of cooperation and bring it down to the Earth's surface. I think there is something that changed in me, and I think that thing that changed is my definition of the word home. Eventually, we uh, smashed into the ground, and out of the window, I remember seeing a rock, a flower, and a blade of grass. I was home, but I was in Kazakhstan. Traveling away from our hometown or our nation or our planet gives us the opportunity to look back upon ourselves and to realize what we have always been. That realization is one of the, the most uh, important things that we get from exploration. Welcome, Ron. Thank you, really, for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to hang out with us. Um, you have such a remarkable life story in, in, in your book, uh, Journey, um, or I should say Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution. You, you portray your own personal trajectory in the most compelling way. And so, because your story is indeed so outstanding. Let's start a little bit with that, how, how you got to this point in your life, and in particular, the courage that you express to share um, every aspect of it, from being a fighter pilot during Desert Storm to your underground, underseas work, I should say, and then your um, orbital work. So if you don't mind telling us a little bit about literally just a, a brief tour of your uh, extraordinary bio to, to help us situate you and contextualize our conversation. Yeah, sure thing. And, th and thanks for the invitation uh, to, to have a chat with you and, and to uh, engage with your listeners. This is, uh, this is re really going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this. So, so thank you for that invitation. Um, so I, I kind of uh, arrived at NASA uh, as an astronaut the, uh, through the traditional route. So I became a, a, a fighter pilot and then a test pilot, and then I was selected from uh, the cadre of test pilots to um, go on to NASA and to eventually fly in space. Uh, and that dream to do that started back on July 20th, 1969, uh, when you know I, as a small boy, along with millions and millions of people around the world, and I remember you telling me the story of you, your experience uh, that same night, uh, you know, watched those first footsteps on the moon. And as as I said in that video, I realized. You know, I wouldn't have been able to put it in these words at the time, but I realized at some level we had just become a different species, a species no longer confined to our planet. And so uh, I wanted to be a part of that group of explorers that got to, you know, step out off the planet and to, to look back upon ourselves. Um, and that um, was a, a long and winding road, uh, much of which is, is documented in, in Floating in Darkness. Uh, but it's documented for a reason. Uh, there's a, there's a, a deeper, uh, richer purpose uh, in in telling that story and and um, and talking about the obstacles uh, 
that was, you know, it's funny, you know, I, throughout that whole process and that whole period, you know, I thought obstacles were, um, things to overcome on the way, right? And things to, things to, and, and now, you know, I'm starting to realize that, that the obstacles are the way, right? So. It's such an important point, isn't it? Obstacles yeah. obstruct the path. They are the path. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so talk to us a little bit more about, oh my gosh, when I was reading your book, the, the really, this, this would make a killer movie, pardon the pun. <laughs> it, it would put Tom Cruise and Top Gun to shame. Talk to us a little bit about uh, your your experiences, um, and also let me back backpedal for just a second because one of the really compelling things about um, floating in darkness is the way you construct the book um, based on um, Plato's al famous allegory of the cave. So maybe share with us what that allegory is, and then that will help people understand your elegance of of a kind of aligning your life uh, to the. A kind of perennial truth of that particular parable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the basic, you know, allegory of the cave is, um, you know, Plato uh, proposed that or postulated that there were these these uh, guys that were living in a cave. They were chained to the cave. They spent their entire life chained to the cave. They knew nothing else but the life that was in the cave. Uh, light from behind them. Uh, cast shadows on the cave wall, uh, sounds that emanated from behind them uh, echoed off the cave wall, leading the, the guys in the cave to believe that the shadows were making the sound. And they spent their entire life uh, and a lot of work and effort uh, and became experts in classifying the shadows on the wall. And, you know, one day one of the prisoners escaped and, and when he made it outside the cave, he, he discovered that the world was you know, richer, more colorful, more beautiful, superior in every way to the life in the cave. And he empathized and had sympathy for the for the folks still trapped in the cave. But when he went back into the cave <laughs> to try and um, uh, tell them about what he had discovered, um, they wouldn't hear of it because, um, you know, they they were so entrenched in, in the, their life in the cave. And so um, the allegory there is um, that I think that's the way we live our lives. It's certainly the way I lived my life, you know, in the darkness of my own ignorance inside the cave. Um, I'm still inside the cave, but at least I've had the opportunity to turn around and see light streaming in from, from an entrance out uh, uh, outside the cave. Um, and so uh, kind of the closing words, uh, one of the closing words of the book is that, you know, I want to devote the rest of my life to exploring what's outside the cave. Um, and obviously this is all metaphorical. So yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how much power that story crafted several thousand years ago has such a still immediate constant applicability. And so tell us a little bit now, let's, let's, let's come back to your remarkable story, especially the early years when, when you were a fighter pilot dropping bombs uh, in Desert Storm. And then when you, when you sat, what's the terminology you use in the book? When you sat nuke or when you were working? Uh, sat nuclear alert, yes. Nuclear so, alert, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, the prologue uh, is a very abstract, metaphorical prologue. Uh, and it ends, the prologue ends with the, the explosion of the Tsar Bomba. It was, a, a, it was on October 30th, 1961, uh, which is a significant date in my life, um, which I don't want to give away. Um, but... That was the largest man-made explosion in history to date. Uh, it is still a 50 megaton um, blast. And that 
was in there uh, to set up a powerful juxtaposition with the opening of chapter one, which is basically me reporting uh, during the Cold War uh, uh, on a base in West Germany to to, to nuclear alert. Um, and so, um, you know, that's that is really uh, an interesting time of my life where, you know, I was on the I was on the tip of the sword of the you know mutually assured destruction deterrence um, uh, that luckily worked, uh, <laughs> and but um, I, I go really deep into kind of dissecting that and um, you know what it meant to me personally. But the book, you know, the subtitle of the book is a journey of evolution, and so the worldview professed in the beginning of the book, the language I use in the, in the beginning of the book, uh, the mindset I have in the beginning of the book evolves um, throughout the book. And so uh, the, the entire book uses an autobiographical narrative to serve as an allegory for the evolution of society. And so, you know, the book starts out very tribal um, and then uh, the, the, it doesn't not get tribal, but the tribe expands. Again, I don't want to give too much away because <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil the read. Yeah, and what's so elegant about it, this is why there was so much resonance with with your book, is, uh, again, to contextualize it in some of the languaging that my audience is familiar with, Ron, is that this is this is kind of a cl uh, really classic, beautiful, elegant um, evolution, even in, in the um, developmental arena, that we go from egocentric to family, tribal-centric to uh, world-centric, and then eventually to cosmocentric. And, and so your life is a fractal iteration. It recapitulates that incredible trajectory. And, and then the, the summation of it, and this, for our listeners, this is where Ron and I, I think we're gonna have a very interesting conversation. The, it, it really leads to the fruition of how evolution is in fact, and integral people, by the way, um, talk really powerfully about how evolution itself really is increase in perspective. That actually is one way to look about what evolution is. And so to, uh, let's talk uh, uh, immediately about this kind of central point, especially in orbital perspective, um, about, the, about the power of perspective, about how revolutionary that has been for you on your personal journey. And then for you as the philosopher, sage, stepping out of the cave, in this case, stepping outside of the gravity, the, the gravitas of our planet, and then having literally this perspective from outer space to see the world in, in a, a really more um, authentic way. Because really another way to talk about the allegory of the cave that you so beautifully articulate is that appearance is not in harmony with reality. And this is, again, this ties in beautifully, we'll get to this a little bit later. This ties in really beautifully to the whole lucidity principle when we talk about in our community about lucidity and dreams, lucidity and dream of sleep. It is intimately connected to this level mm -hmm. of perspective and the awakening, this is the key, right? The awakening that is correlative to that increase in perspective. So talk to us a little bit about what, what is the orbital perspective, um, kind of uh, definitional terms, and then how has it uh, so radically transformed your life? Because this is the, the really the central thesis of your work. Yeah, and, and there's so many 
um, analogies that we can make. Yeah. You, you know, you brought up one about lucid dreaming. Meditation is another um, right. really good a- analogy that we can we can talk about. But basically, what the orbital perspective perspective is is it's an extension of the what's called the overview effect. <laughs> and I know in in dreams of light, you talk about the underview effect, yeah. which is <laughs> which which is um, you know kind of riffing on Frank White's book, The Overview Effect, where he interviewed a number of astronauts and and defined this term the overview effect as um, a, a light bulb that comes on on uh, folks, you know, over folks' heads who have seen uh, the planet from space. And um, the, the epiphany of our interdependence, our interconnection, our unity uh, from, from that vantage point. Um, and if, if that's what the overview effect is, then the orbital perspective is the call to action that comes from the overview effect. The orbital perspective is what you do with um, the overview effect. And so um, you rightly said, you know, it's all about perspective. And, you know, maybe a way to describe what I'm talking about is uh, to use a term that I use throughout the book, Floating in Darkness, a term that I uh, borrowed, <laughs> in quotation marks here, borrowed from uh, cinematography. Uh, and, and which is a dolly zoom right. and a dolly zoom is a technique where the camera is rolled or dollied back at the same time and the same rate that the it's it's zoomed in or vice versa and it was used in movies like jaws and um vertigo and, and a bunch of other movies you, you once you once you realize you, you see it all over the place and what it serves is to um expand the viewer's perception of reality it gives depth and height to a scene it it uh you know, as the foreground stays in the same place and the background, you know, stretches, it really challenges the viewer's perception of reality uh, in that scene. And so to dolly zoom a situation is to zoom out to the widest geographic, geographical uh, area possible, ideally to the entire planet or beyond, uh, while not using the worm's eye, not losing the worm's eye details on the ground. So we don't zoom out in a, if we're talking about a problem or a challenge, we don't zoom out to the point where people become numbers on a spreadsheet where people cease to be valued members of, of, of our human family, right? There's also a temporal aspect to it too. So we want to zoom out to the longest time frame possible, ideally multi-generational, uh, while not losing uh, the short-term uh, effects, right? And so right now as a species <laughs> or as a society, we are uh, extremely over-focused on the short-term, especially when we start talking about business or, or politics or, or whatever. You know, we, we can't see past the next shareholder report, the next election cycle. Uh, but when we zoom out to the long-term, to the multi-generational uh, perspective, we, we can't lose those things. They are, they're, they are important. We need to keep those in sight too, but we need to integrate the two. And the last aspect of, of the Stolly Zoom which applies to the orbital perspective, is multiple perspectives, is incorporating multiple perspectives. And this this really uh, came to me on a spacewalk where my view of the planet, my view of the Earth was changing by five miles every second. So every, every second, my, my perspective was changing by five miles. And when we see things from two perspectives, we see it in stereoscopic vision, right? We start to see it in 3D. We start to see the depth of the situation. So the more perspectives we can apply to any any process, the the deeper our understanding of that process, the the, the more effective, the more lasting will be the solutions 
that come out of that. And so um, those are all things that are incorporated in, in, in what I like to call the orbital perspective. Um, and that is, you know, I, I, I return to Earth with a call to action to share this perspective. And, and maybe to, uh, to help with a couple analogies, you know, what, you know there, there's always a saying that, you, you know, you can't solve a problem from inside the problem. You need to get outside the problem. If you're inside the problem, you're part of the problem and you need to get outside it. And so there's, there is something really, really powerful to, to becoming a detached observer, a detached witness, right? And so when I, when I was looking at the grandeur of the indescribable beauty of our planet from space, I was looking at, at it from outside the masterpiece, right? Yeah. So, so imagine that you're, you know, sitting on a beach and looking at a beautiful sunset, or you're, at, you're sitting on the rim of the, uh, the Grand Canyon, looking out at this beautiful, this beautiful scene. Gravity is pushing you down inside that scene. You are part. You're inside the frame of the of the masterpiece, inside the frame of the painting, right? But when we can get outside of that frame is when things really become clear. And that's, you know, uh, lucid dreaming, for, for instance, you know, uh, I'm not a lucid dreamer, but I, from what I've read in your books, what I imagine is that you're able to be an outsider looking in on your dreams. Or if you're in meditation, meditation is all about, you know, being a silent witness to your, to your thoughts and, and seeing things from the outside. There's also, you know, the other analogy is the weightless aspect of it, right? So, <laughs> so you know, I, it's not that I was just a detached observer. I was also weightless, right? So I was, I was outside the confines of the gravitational pull of the earth. That's not actually true from a physics point of view, but from a experiential point of view, it, it's certainly true. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the reasons why the book is called floating in darkness is, is to get outside of the gravitational pull of the mass of the universe, uh, and to, or the apparent mass of the universe and to, um, and to reach orbit, and you know, and orbit is where we no longer need our engines. Uh, so the analogy there is we don't need to, we, we don't need all the effort and brute force uh, that that we've been putting into things. So um, I could go on and on, but I think, <laughs> I think I'll stop there. No, just it's, I, I want you to go on and on, but I just want to put a couple um, exclamation points on several things here, Ron. And this, of course, is why we're getting together to talk about some confluences, some resonances that. Um, on first glance, may seem completely irreconcilable because you know you're you're an explorer of outer space. I'm an explorer of inner space. But here's here's the real thing for me, and this is again we can well let's get cosmic. I mean because <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to get into some really deep stuff here that you know from the wisdom traditions as I've come to understand them, outer space is not the same as inner space of the mind, but it's also not different. And so that's when you when we talk about the outer light. Um, what we know is external light. It's also not the same as the light of the mind, but it's also not different. And so somewhere that non-binary ambiguity, there is real truth there. And that's why we can talk and you can and you can bring out these incredibly powerful metaphors, because on one level, there is this confluence, whether it's inner or outer, we are talking about the base, the same basic phenomenology from two different perspectives. And so what I wanted to say here that is so cool for me. This is where my go, where my mind goes, is when you talk about the Dali Zoom, um, for our listeners, this is exactly what the meditative traditions talk about is the unity of shamatha and vipassana. This is the you can classify all meditations in the Buddhist arena under those two um, umbrellas. Shamatha is 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 the, the focus, the attention on the foreground. Vipassana is in fact the, the kind of background open awareness. And so when you're talking about this is exactly resonant with that um, kind of meditative trajectory. Right. And secondly, when you're talking about 
uh, the witnessing stance, oh my gosh, I mean, literally, it's quite literally called witness awareness, where, where you gain this new sense of perspective. And that really, like you so powerfully suggested, is integral to awareness itself. That's what lucidity is. Lucidity is code word for awareness. So in exactly the way you say, when you when you kick out of the orbit of non-lucidity and you see things from this new perspective, all of a sudden you have an entire new skill set, armamentarium, for now handling problems that were previously you were too close to see. And so that, that's why so many of us here, so to speak, still stuck on Earth using that um, literal and metaphorical application. We're so non-lucid, we're so embedded, we're so, in a sense, so close that we literally can't see. And so, again, your usage of the allegory of the cave is just so brilliant because the sage pioneer, in this case, the astronaut, or sometimes called the psychonaut or the oneironaut. Oneironauts are those who explore the inner dimensions of the mind. And so to me, it's this mind-bending ineffable mystery of the resonance between your outer trajectory and then what I write about in Dreams of Light as the under-view effect or the same type of perspective that perhaps, like you say in your book, we can reach by exploring inner space. Um, and so I, I'm curious how that lands with you and whether you have some comments or, or uh, contributions along that line. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm completely in, in agreement, especially, you, you know, this, this um, taking, the, taking the close view, you know, the focused view and taking the, you know, stand back, the big view. Uh, I think the the path or the secret is in the integration of those two, and to realize that they're they're just a circle that <laughs> that folds back on itself. And um, you know, there's a scene in the book uh, that's a dream that's a dream sequence um, where you know the the unimaginably small merges with the unimaginably large, the unimaginably fast merges with the unimaginably slow. You know, basically entering into eternity and uh that reality is is a gently curving um circle that leads back to to our true home right and home is home is a really important word throughout the book as well the definition of home and what it means um and um how, how we get there so <laughs> yeah in fact you know, I, I think it's very interesting because on one level I, I when i read that i was i was struck um with a couple of things one is that when we expand our, our sense of home in a certain sense, it, we're, we're actually learning how to become homeless. It's, it, there is, it turns out to be the same thing. And so it's, it's so interesting, Ron, there, there's a type of meditation, it's called actually the practice of open awareness, where uh, one of the fruitions of this type of homeless, uh, I should say open awareness, is actually developing the capacity for homeless awareness. Yeah. And by that, what I mean is wherever you are becomes your home. It, it really, home is a principle. Like you discovered, home is not, yes, it has a, a physical kind of ontological place as we know it conventionally, but really home is a principle. And so what, what in fact is the home principle? And therefore, can we in fact establish this quality of home no matter where we are, which then really becomes the opposite, becomes the cultivation of a type of homeless awareness. Are we okay being at home no matter where we are? Well, home is always here, right? <laughs> exactly. always here right now whether you, whether you, whether you like it or not and also when we think about even conventionally when we think about the like write your own list what what are the characters qualities that actually define your sense of home and then realize well wait a second where are these 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 qualities are not external these are qualities of heart and mind mm -hmm. these are qualities that i can cultivate 
and allow myself to be comfortable under any possible circumstances. So sometimes when we're we're forced, evicted, or in your case, voluntarily ejected, evicted, and out of space, <laughs> it, it erratically challenges our sense of home centrality. Again, this this evolutionary thing, and this also ties in in Ron to my favorite working definition of meditation these days, which is in fact habituation to openness. Really, habituation right. to space. And so as we as we continue to open, 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 and in your case, you did it literally. Now we're not talking metaphorically, but again, it 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 can come to the same level of insight. Insight can be brought from outside. And so that's what I find just so beautiful, the way these these two different seemingly opposite vectors can be pointing towards similar truths. And that's why you're sitting here talking to someone like me. And instead of like, like what what would an astronaut have in common with a psychonaut? <laughs> or, uh, or, or, or an onagronaut, right? So everything, <laughs> everything, isn't it? Yeah, I, I wanted to read in that remind in that regard. There, there are a couple, I think, a seminal quotes in your book. So, with your permission, I wanted to read just a couple of things that they're really you bet. And then I want you to run a little commentary on them. Um, the first one is going to be a little bit of a return to your um, the first part of your journey when you were still engaged in, in combat. And, and so I'm going to read this and then we can have a little comment on it because I think this is also something that is worth uh, returning to. So um, the war, this is Ron, the war I feel called to fight will not employ guns and bombs, but an arsenal of compassion, empathy, understanding, patience, love, awe, and wonder. Unlike Desert Storm, this war will not end in weeks. Victory cannot be won without decades of battle. But unless we act now and begin our march toward adopting an orbital perspective, the war will be lost before the battle really begins. I mean, that's an amazing statement, Ron. And, and what immediately came to mind is, is the difference between what the Islamic tradition talks about is jihad, outer jihad and inner jihad. Outer jihad, is, as you well know, is this the really ridiculous and so painful thing we see in the manifest world. But the real inner um, battle is exactly what you're talking about. In inner disarmament, as the Dalai Lama puts it, working with inner jihad, working with, with, uh, with the enemies within, which are fundamentally the enemies of ignorance. And, and so talk to us a little bit about that and how, how that's really transformed your relationship to your current work. Yeah, because <laughs> elsewhere in the book, I say that um, we need to, we need to, channel our martial instincts inward. Uh, that, that, I, I have that quote. I, okay. I, let me read it to you. <laughs> okay. It made me realize the real enemies are internal. Collectively, we need to channel our martial instincts inward. That's the other one I wanted to add. Yes. Right. And, right. And, and I said, like the, you know, unlike the unrealized um, goal of the alchemist to trans to transmute uh, lead into gold, we can transmute our martial in instincts um, into 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 positive, um, positive instincts. Um, and yes, the, the battle is um, inward. Um, and uh, what, you know, basically, the point that I make in it is that we, as a species, individually and collectively, uh, need to transcend our individual and collective egos. Uh, and that is the path uh, that's the path to, to lead to the to the visionary restorative uh, future that we all want to be a part of. Um, and, 
and the and the true enemies are internal, and it starts with each each one of us. Um, is is kind of the point there, and uh, and you know you can't really solve anything uh, uh, in the world without without first addressing, you know, w- what your relationship is with your ego, and um, how to transcend that. And it all it comes down to you know there's another um, scene in the book. Uh, where we talk about legacy and and leaving a legacy from the orbital perspective and and maybe just real quick to set the scene there was a there was a a big chunk of space junk heading towards the space station and uh make a long story short it was it passed you know within 300 meters of the space station traveling i think nine miles a second it was a big p you know it had it hit the space station it would have obliterated the entire space station um and we didn't have we didn't know about it in time to move the orbit of the space station and all we could do is close every hatch on the space station and there were six of us on board three of us got into one solar spacecraft closed the hatch three of us got into the other solar spacecraft closed the hatch and just waited uh, for our destiny, <laughs> you know, for our date with destiny. Um, and we had about 15 minutes to spare. And in that 15 minutes, um, you know, there was really nothing to do but wait. And I started uh, reflecting on on legacy and what that means, you know, because, you know, I might not be alive in the next yeah. you know, f- 15 minutes. And, and you know, have I left the, my mark on, on, the, on the earth? You know, have I, have I achieved my legacy? And so... The point there is is that legacy, as we normally associate it, is um, you, you know leaving a mark so people know that you were here, right? You know, and that's reflected in in you know monuments and cathedrals and and you know naming of buildings and libraries and and all this all this kind of stuff. But when we think about that legacy, um, every every celebrity, every every major statesman, every you know war hero, every 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 one of note will eventually, at most, you know, become a, a historical footnote. Even the great things that we build, every every cathedral, every pyramid, will eventually be reduced to dust. But the point that I make in the book is that legacy, from the orbital perspective is the awareness that every in every moment of every day every action word deed thought ripples out and has tremendous profound implications not only for your own life but for the the trajectory of our society and where our world will be a hundred thousand years from now and where it would have been had you not lived are going to be vastly different and so we are more powerful than we could ever possibly imagine when you look at it from a dolly zoom state when you look at it not only from every moment uh, and every action that you're doing but uh, when you look at it in a very multi-generational point of view and so legacy from that point of view doesn't require that anybody gets credit for anything you know it's you know this a lot of the a lot of our progress is hampered by you know well-meaning people making sure that first and foremost they're going to get the credit for what they're what they're doing and and uh that is a that is tends to be a big impediment to to real progress uh and you know i've done a lot of work in in sustainable development around the world Mm -hmm. and i've seen that firsthand where um it's it's what what's being done in the short term for these short term uh, appearances are are not really uh, moving the needle at all in in the long term, or not not moving the needle in the direction that uh, is intended. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so much in here that's just so compelling. I mean, to backpedal just a little bit at the outset, you were talking about fundamentally the shift from from ego to eco, where that is another way to frame what you're talking about. That you're, and again, this is so resonant with 
ecology, deep ecology, systems theory, mm -hmm. and all this is absolutely in line with the, the tradition that I follow of Buddhism, where we talk so extensively, tradition talks so, so extensively about dependent origination, that everything is absolutely inextricably connected to everything else. That's actually, as you know, that's what emptiness means. Emptiness means empty of ego and full of ego. So empty of self means full of other. So this again is it's just it's just bloody fantastic. The fact that <laughs> I came to you from this external um, launching pad, whereas the contemplative traditions have an internal launching pad. You're exploring fundamentally the same dimensions. It's just like again using the image of a fractal, which is different iterations and expressions of it. You're exploring outer that leads you to inner. Contemplatives eventually um, explore the inner to such a deep extent that it actually, like a Mobius strip, turns into the outer. And so there's this wonderful merging or intercourse that takes place between the two, where fundamentally you can, in fact, be talking about the same things. And the other thing I really love what you said, Ryan, just to put an exclamation mark on what point on it, is that according to a number of really sensitive thinkers, theorists and the like, that this notion that we have so much more power than we think, exactly like you say, every time you have a thought, that's in this higher spectrum of your identity. Every time you act in a compassionate, altruistic way, every life that you live actually acts like an evolutionary trio where, where you're, you're starting to etch the cosmic habits that the entire population, so really pioneers, you're, you're hacking through the underbrush of ignorance. You're actually creating this path for future generations to follow the easier because of uh, literally quite uh, pioneers in this case were, uh, to follow because of the work that you and, and like-minded practitioners do. And I think this is so important because it's so easy in the modern age to feel so disempowered, to feel like, well, what does it really matter what, what I do? Well, it, it matters tremendously. Um, and so- and, and I think that's why a lot of people um, hesitate to, to make a, a, a difference because they don't think they can make a difference. They exactly. think, what can one person possibly do with these big problems? Absolutely. Yeah, but you know, again, Think local. What is it? Uh, think global. Act local. I mean, there's there's some real power. I would change. I would change that expression because I, I don't oh. like to think global, because because we don't live on a globe. <laughs> we live on a planet. So I so so I would say think think planetary. Because when when you when you there's a good. I mean, there's it's a nuanced thing, but but when you know global is our financial networks our, our computer networks. It's it's abstract lines covering a sphere, right? And that's not. It's an artificial creation uh it's not the true true world that we live in and that that mindset of thinking that we live on a globe and 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 associating all these things like the global economy with with you know reality uh, natural reality not artificial created things is is part of the problem when we think planetary we add the the biosphere into the mix right we we add you know we we and i and i talk about these embedded um consciousness in the book of planetary of, of developing a planetary consciousness which at its core is social consciousness where we finally understand the meaning of one human family and then and then encompassing uh, and the metaphor I use is like the the, the um, rocket fairing cocooning our spacecraft, you know, you know, embedded in the, this nested system is the emerging planetary consciousness, which realizes the, the in the words of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the uh, the basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. Uh, so basically, the interdependence of everything and and in, in, in the biosphere. Um, uh, that we call Earth. Absolutely. It's what, it's what Thich Nhat Hanh writes about so beautifully. I'm sure you know the entire patients on interbeing. 
that we're all so inextricably connected. And I wanted to share again, that this is another one, there were several really highlight statements. So with your permission, this is another thing I wanted to share from your book. Yes. In the most superficial terms, it means if we go back far enough, so this, Ron, this is from you, the beauty of having an orbital perspective. It means if we go back far enough, <clears throat> each and every person can be traced back to the same mother and father. Oh my gosh, let me just throw this in parenthetically. In, in the wisdom traditions, Ron, this goes incredibly far back to really the parents of reality, these archetypal deities. So what you're talking about here, you can even take in a spiritual context to very deep foundational archetypal truths. So back to your quote. It literally means that we are all related. It also means much more. We are interconnected and interdependent on a dimension beyond the physicality of DNA. We are tied together in ways that are not normally evident. At some point in the evolution of our species, we developed individual egos that can only survive in us by masking our true identity. Our egos deceive us into believing that you and I are separate and distinct and nothing more. Yes, an aspect of each of us is separate and unique, but a higher, more real and more important aspect exists where you and I are not separate. Our egos mask the fact that each of us is more than a single life. We are life itself. I believe that if you travel to um, space, and here I would put interjective, inner space, yeah. inner space. <laughs> I believe that you travel to my interjection, inner or outer space, you would realize this, but I don't know this for a fact. The only thing I can say for certain is that traveling to space started me on a journey towards this understanding. Separation from the natural world enabled me to become a detached witness to its splendor and unity. Again, this witness awareness. So say more about that. I mean, again, this is really, this is the, the core of your teaching, the, the central message that really brings the orbital, um, the overview effect, as you put it, into the orbital perspective, where now we, now we have some traction, we have some teeth we can really apply to this view. So, uh, you know, my first flight to space was in 2008. And here, here, I don't know, what is this? I can't do the math in public, but, you know, a long time, you know, 12, 13 years later, yes. I'm still, I'm still processing that, that same experience. Um, and what I experience in space, and I, I, I could put, I put the, put that into these words right away. But my understanding of what this means uh, is still evolving. But what I said almost immediately was, the two main emotions that I felt when I looked back at our planet from space were number one, gratitude, gratitude for the opportunity to, to see the planet from that vantage point and, and gratitude for the, for the planet that we've been given. But the other thing I experienced, and, and again, I, I, I've never been able to fully explain what this means. I try, I tried to do it in floating in darkness. I think I got, I think I got close, but again, it's, 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 it's a moving target, right? Cause it's still, it's still evolving is I felt a, a deep interconnection with every, with the, the entire planet and every, every living thing on it. Right. And it was, uh, it was a profound experience. Um, and, um, what I, I think, you know, being stepping outside the frame of the masterpiece, I think enabled me to see its true beauty, the true underlying beauty. And that true beauty is in the word unity, right? It's in the, it's in the oneness um, that we, that we share. And, you know, there's another scene in the book where I, I kind of dissect U2's song one. <laughs> and, 
you know, come to the conclusion that we're two Dolly Zoom sides of the same coin. We're, we're, we're a distinct individual, but we're also the universe. Um, and it's not that I'm a universe and you're a universe, it's that we are the same universe, that we're one. Um, and in that scene in the book, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the launch pad in Kazakhstan getting ready to launch to space for six months, uh, lying on our backs and the Russian uh, technicians were plug, you know, putting some music into the spacecraft just to, to pass the time for us and, and we were able to choose some of those songs and one of the songs I choose, I chose was U2 song one and, and in this scene I'm just getting these waves of beauty washing over me and I, and I, I was trying to dissect what was happening and you know the words I could understand why they were beautiful because the song talks about unity and unity is a beautiful concept but the underlying the underlying melody was also beautiful and then i i kind of um dig deep into what that means i started dissecting what music is and and how you know it's this it's this sine wave that's being carried on a carrier wave from the launch control center you know to our little headsets and and you know little pads and there are vibrating and it's which is vibrating our, our eardrums which is sending electrical and chemical signals to our brain that's re you know reconstructing all that into something beautiful and you know each of us is is well I talk about how each of the notes by themselves may not be beautiful, but it's in the relationship of the notes. It's with it's within the connection of those notes that that where the beauty arises. And you know, I, I kind of postulate that you know each of us are like the individual notes of the song of the universe, and that you know our physical lives may may last for just a period of time, but but our contribution uh to the overall song lasts forever and the, and the and the song wouldn't be possible without our individual notes and 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 specifically not just our individual notes but our individual notes and our relationship with all the other notes so yeah and are we in fact in resonance with those or in dissonance with them right yeah, exactly uh, you know the symphony, the symphony of the cosmos so andy let's play that second video clip because again um the the imagery the the literal sense of perspective is so compelling here i want to play this one as well so let's sit back and enjoy this on the third spacewalk of that mission my feet were strapped to the end of the space station's robotic arm and it took me through a long arc across the top of the space station and back At the top of this arc i was about 30 meters above the space station looking down at the space station and the earth 250 miles below. The sheer beauty of the scene was just absolutely breathtaking. And I remember the, the first thing that hit me was the realization of the tremendous human achievement that the International Space Station represents. It's arguably the most complicated complex structure ever built. It was built in space by 15 nations. As we all know, some of these nations weren't always the best of friends, but somehow we found a way to set aside our differences and work together on this project. And I thought to myself as I hovered above the space station, if nations can join together and build an enormous, incredibly capable research facility in orbit, we can, by working together, solve the problems that we all face. Nothing is impossible. Our next guest is a retired NASA astronaut, a decorated fighter pilot and test pilot, explorer, entrepreneur, and humanitarian. Please welcome Ron Garand. We could look down 
and from our orbital perspective and realize that each and every one of us is riding through the universe on this spaceship that we call Earth. That we're all in this together, that we're all interconnected, and that we're all family. If we do have all the technology, if we have all the resources to solve all the problems, why do we still have them? One of the key things that I think is missing is our ability to collaborate on a global scale. The good news is, never before in history has it been easier to incorporate the ideas and the efforts from people around the world, regardless of their political ideology, cultural biases, or geographic location. Any worthwhile endeavor requires hard work and stepping outside of the way we've always done things, to look at things from different angles, and to realize that any one of us or any one organization will not have all the pieces of the puzzle. However, it's precisely those people and organizations that truly commit to making a positive change and step outside of their comfort zones. And it's precisely at those moments when they have the courage to embrace new and innovative ideas, partnerships, and collaborate across different disciplines, industries, cultures, boundaries, and borders. Those are the ones that affect real change, disruptive change. Any change requires some level of risk. So I want to share with you a story. I was taking off in an F-16 when I heard a loud explosion that knocked my feet off the rudder pedals and my head back into the seat. This close to the ground, my only option was to eject. I ejected about four seconds prior to impact and less than a second before I would have been outside of the ejection envelope. This is one of those moments that life gives you that really gets your attention. The very next day, in the spirit of getting back on the horse, I flew another F-16. What evolved when I strapped in that day was trust. I had to trust my ground crew was there supporting me to succeed. The technology was there to keep me safe, and the benefit of our greater mission was worth the risk. This new outlook brought me through many dangerous parts of my life, from flying in combat during the first Gulf War, to an instructor at the Air Force's Top Gun School, to being a test pilot to two space missions and four spacewalks. Before I committed to enter any of these challenging situations, I first asked, can I trust my team and technology are going to be there to help me make it through, and is our bigger mission worth the risk? With all of these principles in place, we can propel real solutions that can scale to solve massive challenges and help lead us to a visionary future. That's terrific. I don't mean to embarrass you, Ron, with all with all the kind of the self-aggrandizing promotion thing. But I, I really I want to convey to our listeners just how, how profoundly impressed I am with your work, with your life trajectory, and also your your fearlessness. I mean, in, in uh, to do what you did in combat, to do what you did sitting, I mean, it, it's it's just incredible. And so I'm curious this bravery, this courage, how it is now being extended into this new, you could almost say sannyasan chapter in your life, right? In the classic Indian trajectory, a little bit more internal, a little bit more contemplative, a little bit more, um, I'm not sure mature is the right word, but I think you get the right idea. So the reason I mentioned this is because what you're doing is, I wouldn't say it's against the grain of, of the kind of conventional MO, but it's certainly fearless in, in, in the regard that you are speaking a truth that may not be completely resonant with the Air Force, that may not be completely resonant with everybody at NASA. 
And so two things here, how in fact is your message being received by your former colleagues? And where in fact do you go to maintain that level of personal vision, trajectory, and bravery in the face of these new sets of hurdles back on the planet? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And uh, for first, I just want, <laughs> I just, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize that you're going to play that video. So that that <laughs> video is a is a promo video from my speaking, my keynote speaking. I know. So, that's why so, <laughs> so um, yeah, so so I, I think the overarching thing is is mission, right? Is is what I'm, I'm not a daredevil. I don't do things. I mean, I, I have uh, skydove. Uh, I've been skydiving 50 times. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. But not once did I ever do it for, just for fun. It, they yeah. were fun. They were fun. Uh, but I wasn't doing, I was doing it as part of a job. Right. And I, I don't do things, um, that are dangerous for the sheer fun of, of for, for the thrill of it. Right. I, I do a lot of things that are dangerous, but I do them because there's a risk uh, benefit trade-off that, that I've gone through. And so certainly, you know, flying in space is very dangerous. Um, flying, you know, flying a fighter is very dangerous. Being a test pilot is very dangerous. Uh, flying in combat is very dangerous. But in all those situations, the calculus was that um, the the benefit, the the mission, the overarching mission, the goal that, that was being um, served or, or or trying to be achieved was worth taking that risk. Um, it doesn't mean there's no fear. Uh, it just means you do it anyway. <laughs> so, so. Um, um, yeah, I think that that's the, that's kind of the calculus that, that I use. Um, so, um, and then, you know, as you, as you pointed out, you know, risk takes different forms. Um, and there's, you know, reputational risk and, and, and relationship, relationship risk and, and everything else. But, but so far to date, uh, knock on wood, everything has been well received. I mean, even the book, you know, uh, floating in darkness, I mean, the former chief of staff of the air force endorsed it. Um, and so it's, um, uh, I, I think people, uh, uh, recognize truth when they hear it. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think, um, you know, a lot of the, the topics that I've been able to, uh, have the opportunity to speak about around the world, uh, are at times hot button issues. And I've spoken to audiences about topics like, you know, refugee crisis and environmental issues and global warming and, and you know, a lot of these uh, issues that have been polarized and have been politicized. And I've spoken to audiences that norm normally wouldn't accept any, any, you know, are really entrenched in their, in their belief or disbelief uh, on these, on these topics. And, Without exception, I've found that when these ideas are approached from, not from a p position of fear, mm -hmm. but from a foundation of awe and wonder, and, and when uh, they are couched in undeniable terms uh, and the truth is able to resonate, that regardless of how entrenched people are, the mind opens up and uh, rational conversation can begin fr from that point. And I think that's really needed right now because we live in very polarized, very divisive times. And, you know, we talked about part of the orbital perspective, being able to, you know, see things from different perspectives. What we're, what we're in right now is a situation where uh, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, 
you know, hampering factors in the world that are so entrenched, so encamped in their own position that they refuse to see any merit whatsoever in the pers- in, in another's perspective, right? Because if they see merit in it, even the slightest bit of merit, that means that the other side will gain, and that therefore, obviously, they will lose. They don't. It's it's this it's this um, scarcity mindset when it comes to perspective and. Uh, you know, that's obviously amplified by our technology and, uh, you know, each of us being placed into echo chamber walled boxes. And um, but the way out of that is to is to approach things not from fear, because that's all fear based. Uh, and when we are in these boxes, we're separating ourselves not only from the other perspective, we're separating ourselves from the solutions that they could bring to to, to the situation. And so um, those are all fear based, right? And if we can shake the fear based um, aspect and and embrace on wonder, then all that stuff naturally just folds together. Yeah, it is interesting, Ron, that the, that the fear is largely based on the gravitas, the contraction. Because I, I mean, when I look at fear, I spent a lot of time working with this one, Ron, and and in fact, a central kind of maxim of my entire life, completely with the caveat that you said earlier, not in a thrill-seeking way, but is follow your fear. Mm-hmm. Because that's going to lead you to real growth because it's going to stretch you outside of your comfort zone. It's going to put you into the growth zone. And, and that's that also starts to expand your orbit. And that type of growth, I would say it's almost uh, proportional to, to the fear that, that really this is these are the markers that can lead to the profoundest growth. And so in my own life, doing my three-year retreat, doing things like dark retreat, Again, being aware of the thrill-seeking end of it, it's like I pay very close attention to those dimensions of my life where I feel the contraction of fear. And I, I use it as, a, as a, a cautious maxim, like, let's go there. Because fear is what? It's a meaning of ignorance. We're right. afraid of what we don't know. Exactly. And so if we can just even reframe, put people in that orbit, just say, hey, what is the nature of this thing called fear? What 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 is it? What is the gravity that draws us, contracts us around that? ties into what you were saying at the outset. It's all based on self-centricity, egocentricity, you know, contraction. It works in ultimate self-defense to protect that very sense of self. And so I I have to throw that in because this is, again, such a central path, I think, to human growth and development altogether. So feel free to run with that a little bit further. Yeah. Super important. Well, I, I, you know, one of the reasons why the title of the book is "Floating in Darkness" is that most growth, if not all growth, occurs in darkness, right? You know, uh, a seed grows in the darkness of the ground to become a bountiful fruit-bearing tree. Uh, a fetus grows in the darkness of a womb uh, to become a sentient being capable of of uh, pondering in infinity and the meaning of life. And as you know well, you know, our mind is rejuvenated in the darkness of sleep, right? And growth occurs in the darkness of sleep. And so. Um, all growth comes um, in darkness, but it also comes uh, at times uh, or most times with some discomfort and pain and 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 suffering and fear, and so all of those things uh, can be transmuted into into growth, into real growth, uh, if we allow it to. I mean, we we also can ha- allow that you know fear and all those things to spiral us down in in the wrong direction too. But uh, but again, those are those are the the tool again just like you know it's it's not getting around obstacles the obstacle is the path it's the same thing all of these things are the path uh that lead to growth and to lead to uh, and they all come with a willingness 
to face our fear, uh, to to push through our fear, to step out, to, to step outside of the comfortable, uh, to, you know, to step outside of our, our comfortable boxes we put ourselves in, and that especially applies to our own opinions and our on our sense of reality and and all these things. We get really comfortable in uh, the shadows on the cave wall, right? We've we've spent all our lives classifying these shadows. We feel really comfortable with them, and change any change is uncomfortable, uh, and at times painful. And, but, you know, we're stepping out of the darkness of the cave into the light. Um, and that's, and, and that requires, um, I, I think, you know, the willingness to, to be able to step outside of, of the comfortable. And again, it's, it's, it, you know, in the central, in the Buddhist tradition, around the, in the Eightfold Noble Path, leading to the path of awakening, the first and, and form of, most important of those eight factors is in fact, right view. And so here, this is again, this is why if, if, if sage, um, sages, visionaries, in this case, astronauts come back, literally sharing the right view, then that view can actually propagate. Instead of propagating fear, you propagate that wisdom. And so once you're armed with that right view, then you're willing to step into the darkness because you realize my, my dear friend Chris Wallace writes, you know, fundamentally there is no, especially in the inner journey, he says there is no darkness within, only light unseen. And so if you understand that that within the darkness, which is almost like a gauntlet, it's almost like a test, it lies this foundational, foundational dimensions of growth, that view in itself can really inspire us. And I wanted to share, so interesting that you mentioned what you just did, because the last quote I wanted to share of the text <laughs> from your book was in fact this one. Most growth occurs in darkness. And though, again, for those of you who are nightclub members, like what are we exploring here in, in the nightclub curriculum? Darkness, unconscious mind, ignorance, literal. Most, dark, uh, most growth occurs in darkness. Our bodies and minds are rejuvenated during the darkness of sleep. A seed grows in the darkness of the earth to become a bountiful fruit-bearing tree. A fetus grows in the darkness of the womb to become a beautiful sentient creature capable of pondering infinity and the meaning of life. So too, the dark times of our lives have a sacred purpose to bring us closer to the truth, closer to freedom, closer to true potential. Another way to put this is that growth can come from discomfort and suffering, which can be transmuted into wisdom and awareness that replaces the darkness and illuminates the real world. I mean, this, this could have been written by a mystic, my friend. I mean, <laughs> like, like, who penned this thing, right? So, so let, let me... It, 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 let me ask you a question and see if this um, is workable for you. I, I'm, I'm really interested in, in how this unfolding chapter of your life, you, you're, the fact that you read my books, have read my books, first of all, it honors me tremendously. The fact that you have an interest in this kind of inner exploration of space, I, I find just so compelling. So if I might ask, how, how does this interior exploration in your own religious, spiritual um, tradition, makeup, whatever, if I, if I can ask, how is that being um, exercised or worked uh, currently in your own life stage? I mean, what, what, to what level is spirituality or uh, meditation or the contemplative approaches really part of your daily life? So, so the, the answer is I'm seeking to have it infuse every aspect of it. Um, and so, so to me, like if you, if you're talking about meditation, for instance, you know, meditation is not something that uh, I do for 30 minutes, you know, in the morning and 30 minutes, in the afternoon. meditation is, is 
happens 24 hours a day, right? Meditation is a mind is a mindset, right? It's it's it's, and and I know I know you you speak about that sort of thing, and so, um, one of the things that I'm not doing right now is labeling anything. I don't I don't want to put myself in a box, um, and so. Um, and I, and, and again, I write about this in Flowing in Darkness, how I, I believe when, when it comes to religion, uh, I believe that, that all religion, um, can be, uh, can be a, a path towards the truth. It's a vehicle that ca- can carry us towards the truth if it's approached in, in a humble, uh, sincere manner, right? Uh, and, uh, where, you know, followers and leaders of, of, of various religious traditions get into trouble or stray off the path is when they mistake the vehicle for the truth for truth itself. And it doesn't make any sense to me that, that an infinite reality can be compressed down to a, fi- you know, a finite doctrine made of finite human words. Um, and so uh, I think they could be signposts, again, vehicles that, that point us uh, in that direction. And so I, I, I kind of look at labels as, as boxes that, that I, I don't want to put myself in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I try and find uh, the truth in, in all traditions, in, in, in all paths. And, um, you know, the, the particular path that I wrote about in Flowing in Darkness was th- through Christianity. Um, but I, I make it very clear that I, I don't, think that uh i i acknowledge that the, and respect and honor that there are many paths uh, to reach the the truth um and again as long as uh that path is is sought out in a, in a humble and sincere and genuine authentic way i i think it can serve it can serve to bring us across the river basically mm-hmm. um so yeah you know, it's such a way that there's a, a, a if i <laughs> excuse me can I remember there's this parable story of you know um God and the devil are walking together and God reaches down and sees uh, something really quite beautiful, um, picks it up and puts it in his pocket. And, and the devil turns over and says, oh, what was that? And he goes, oh, it's just a little beautiful kernel of truth. And the devil says, oh, let me take a look at it. I'll organize it for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that, it's like, that's where, that's where the troubles start. So, so where, where do you see, um, you know, we're, we're talking so much about vision and aspiration and perspective. Where do you see, um, how much hope do you give us? Where, you're, you're uniquely situated as a scientist, as an astronaut, um, and I know how ecologically sensitive you are. Um, how, how do you see the current world situation and, and the role of hope and fear in relationship to that? If I look at things as shadows on the cave, as shadows on the cave wall, um, I'd be a, a really big pessimist. Uh, and um, I am pe- pessimistic about some things in the short term, um, but I'm not just looking at the shadows on the cave wall. I'm looking at the bigger picture, and um, I I would classify myself again. I don't like to label things, but so I won't, I won't classify classify myself as an optimist. But I will say I will say I've taken on some optimistic qualities because of um, because I, I I think it's going to win out in the end. I, I know it's going to win out in the end. Light always wins out over darkness, and um, you know the optimist in me sees all the things that we've talked. You know the, all the the polarization, the divisiveness, a lot of the you know, trends that we've seen develop, like, you know, hyper-nationalism and, and things like that, racial unrest and all this kind of stuff. 
the optimist in me sees those as the de death rows of the old human epoch. Um, and one of the one of the main things that fills me with optimism is, I mean, just the fact that we can have a conversation like this. Um, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be having this conversation even two years ago. Um, I would, I mean, this conversation would go right over right over my head. I wouldn't understand any of it. And you know, I think there's a, a blossoming awareness of this of this deeper this deeper reality, this more true this this um, more fundamental reality of, of our underlying uh, implicit wholeness, our unity. Um, and, you know, it, it, we, we, we tend to see the world in very two-dimensional ways. I mean, we've all been trained uh, in classrooms around the world to look at the world in a two-dimensional, you know, as a two-dimensional map, you know, with, with multicolored nation states, right? But that's not the true unity of the world. The, tr the true view of the world is what I saw from space. The true unity of the world is represented in, in photographs like, the, like Earthrise that, that shows the fact that we have a, a, co a common origin uh, and we have a shared future. Um, and we're all, we literally are all on this together uh, and we need to figure, we need to figure this out. Uh, and so there are a lot of disturbing trends. Uh, there are a lot of positive trends, uh, but I think uh, in the end, uh, or there is no end, but in the in the long term, uh, the positive trends are going to win out. Yeah, isn't it? Is, is again another the, the power of metaphor here that International Space Station, fifteen nations coming together to create probably the most complex, sophisticated invention in human history, and then you know Dolly Zoom, and here's the Earth, space, the International Space Station, Earth. And, yeah. and why can't like you're saying why why can't we take this? And so. Let's get a little bit practical as we start to wind this down. Implementation strategies. So we've been talking so much about right view, but at a certain point, the view without legs becomes um, ineffectual. So you're not a politician. Um, this may be outside of the, the scope of your pay grade, so to speak. But I, I'm curious how you counsel uh, implementation. What, what do you encourage people like us to do um, because what, what can happen, the reason I mentioned this, Ron, is in, in, in my business, so to speak, there's a really common epidemic of what's called spiritual bypassing, where you use spiritual techniques and whatnot to actually preemptively, um, pathologically transcend human concerns. And, and again, just to give you one crazy extreme example, I heard one teacher who will remain unnamed um, in response to the situation on the earth saying, oh, you know, uh, I'm not really that concerned because when I die, I'm going to go to a pure land. And that yeah. is like so, so off. It's like unspeakable to me. So we started with you. We started with heaven, so to speak. As we start to close here, let's join heaven with earth. How, how can we take this vision, use it on a day-to-day -day basis, and implement some of these um, insights, literally, to, to bring about change so that we just don't sit here and shake our head and watch the news and say, oh my God, we're so screwed. And then we just go on doing what we're doing. So can you give us some tips along those lines or how to actually, you know, practice what we're preaching here? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I said that, that um, flowing in darkness, a journey of evolution, the, the writing of the book itself was an evolution. Yeah. And in, in that, you know, in the, in kind of the closing of the book, I talked and you re, you read this passage, right? Where I, I equated it to to a, a battle, right? A battle where the, the we're not going to have uh, you know guns and bombs, but we're going to have empathy and compassion. Um, in the in the 
in the path of the evolution, I would not have, I would, like, if I wrote that today, I would not have used that metaphor. I would not have used the metaphor of, of, a, of a battle, of a war, um, because that, I, I think it's a mixed metaphor. Uh, I, I really do think that. And so to answer your question, I, I, I employ the, the Dolly Zoom again, right? Yeah. We, we need, so if you zoom out to the big picture, like, like when, I, when I speak around the world and if I'm speaking to big corporations, I talk about that we're at the inflection point between two human epochs. And what got us to this point is no longer going to serve us in this, in this transition, right? And so biological systems, uh, and this is, this is from the work of, of Jonathan and Jonah Salk, um, where they talk about how uh, biological systems, uh, the population of those systems stays flat for a really, really long time. And then eventually it takes off exponentially. And then one of two things happen. Each, each, either reaches an equilibrium uh, and and it thrives in that equilibrium or it comes crashing back down. And so we as a human population, uh, you know, right, right around the Industrial Revolution took off exponentially, you know, right around 1968-ish, uh, the inflection point occurred where it started to bend back over. And now we're right at this point where we either need to find an equilibrium or, or it comes cra crashing back down. And so all the things that led us to that exponential growth of population are the very things that are going to make us come crashing down. And so when it comes to, and I think one of the most powerful forces on the planet is business, if not the most powerful force on, on the planet. And business has the incredible opportunity to either destroy our planet by clinging to the mindset of the old human epoch. And this is a mindset that is centered on conquest and competition and profit maximization and resources exploit, exploitation at all costs. Or business can can save our planet by uh, switching from you know blind independence to interdependence to to seeing business uh, first and foremost as a as a uh, service to society right and businesses are not seen as independent uh, entities operating in a solely self-serving vacuum but as interdependent nodes in a fabric of prosperity where everybody has the opportunity to live a good life in harmony with each other and, and our planet and and everybody has the opportunity to make their contribution to society that, that they so choose because they've reached their potential right and so you know, I speak in those terms uh, in the macro, right? In the big, in the zoom out part of the Dolly Zoom. In the zoom in part of the Dolly Zoom, it comes down to individuals, it comes down to us, right? And so, you know, like I said, I've done a lot of work, uh, humanitarian work, and, and, and as I know that you have as well, and a lot of um, um, sustainable development um, and so social programs and everything else. And I see a lot of people who are, are trying to do the right thing, but they're doing it in a wrong way, and and the motive the motivation is wrong, and and the results are counterproductive, uh, and so, you know, it it all it, it's the cliche is just because something is a cliche doesn't mean it's not true, and and this idea that we need to start that we need to start with ourselves, and we need to we need to have the peace within us. We can't we can't create peace in the world if we don't have the peace within us, and we can't create. Um, the right mindset in the world uh, without the right mindset within us. And I think uh, that Dolly Zoom aspect is uh, first and foremost is, is working on our own internal things as, as, I, as I know uh, you profess as well. And, and I, I'm sure most if not everybody who, who listened to this on this program would be in, in that camp. Uh, that, is, that is the most important thing. But again, I circle back to what I started with is the tools of being able to do this is compassion and empathy um, 
and being able to to seek to reduce the suffering in others um and and that's that's the true path to 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 progress for all of us and one of the ways to do that is to break down this this false idea of separation this this false shadow on the cave wall of called separation uh and that's to realize that if something happens you know in, in some part of the world and we think oh those poor people over there let me help let me write a check let me do something to help um there is a, a basic fallacy that that is all built on and that's those poor people over there that's not those poor people over there that's us that's happening to us right and so we're not helping those poor people over there we're, we're helping us. And uh, I think that's, uh, and that, you know, obviously transcends boundaries and borders and, and, and everything else. And um, that's the mindset that I think will um, help lead us into that new epoch where we'll reach the equilibrium and not come crashing down. Yeah. And, and how do you work with despondency or, or despair? Or it, it, does that even enter your orbit, so to speak? I mean, because when you, when you, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, but on, on one level, um, sometimes that, that's so painful. It's called you know, helping burnout. You know, you just, how, how open can you actually um, sustain your heart mind before you just kind of collapse and contract out of your inability to stay so open? So I'm curious, what, what inspires you to, to be a, 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 a warrior, a, a brave one, when it comes to looking at the insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable dimensions of what we're all facing. Is that, is it again, continuing to dolly zoom to just, yeah, exactly. You step in, you don't get too enmeshed because in a certain sense, I guess I'm answering that a little bit out loud here is if you get too much into that, that's non-lucidity, right? So you lose the yeah. vision. So you feel that maybe not feed it, then you step back out, you have the vision. And then maybe there's this kind of pulsation between the informative and spiritual view and then the implementation strategies that keep your boots on the ground. Yeah, I think the Dolly Zoom aspect goes goes um, even more than that. And and you know, I I've, since we we're you know spent eighteen months in COVID, I did a lot of um, speaking on resiliency and um, what we call in the space business expeditionary behavior. Right? <laughs> so so this is the this is the zoomed out part, right? And you know, it's 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 difficult. You know, when you when you're speaking to a group, uh, a group that contains individuals that are, you know, are having issues with hope and despondency and and you know, uh, suffering fatigue and, and and all this this kind of stuff, you know, it's you run the risk of over over generalizing and 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 you know not not getting deep enough. And so the Dolly Zoom is to be able to talk to groups of which, you know, groups that contain folks that are dealing with those types of challenges, but then also zooming in on a one on one basis. And the one on one basis is, is really powerful. And it's very personal. So it's, it, it's there is no cookie cutter aspect of that. There's no cookie cutter on either end of the spectrum. But there's especially no cookie cutter when you're talking uh, the one on one part. But going back to the expeditionary behavior, what that means is, that uh, that we need to we're part of a bigger team, right? We're part of bigger a bigger mission. We're part of a bigger purpose, and we need to be a contributing member uh, of that team. And so, uh, one of the things that expeditionary behavior teaches is that you're not going to help the mission. You're not going to help your team uh, if you yourself are, are having issues. If you're fatigued. If you're not getting proper nutrition and rest, and and uh, you know shedding stress in, 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 in ways that, that are productive and, and positive. And so self-care is, is, is a big issue on that. But the other thing is you have to have a willingness to forego at times your own comforts, your own desires, 
errors uh, and your own objectives for the for the greater good, for the greater objective. And uh, that has uh, profound effects on our our uh, immune system. <laughs> yeah, altruistic behavior has been shown to to boost the immune system. So that in, in, in is also a part of a part of self care. Um, but then. Once you're able to maintain your own self-care, then you're also able to watch out for those telltale signs in your teammates that they're having problems. And that's where the empathy comes from and the compassion comes from to, to help carry the load at times for others when, when you can. Uh, or have the humility to accept when others are carrying the load for you uh, as, as well as part, of, as part of that same self-care. Absolutely. Really well said, Ron. And it's a little bit like, again, this, this sense of expansion that... It's like going to work for your family. You know, you may not want to get up on Monday morning, but you realize your vision is so much larger that you, you, you every day you step forward because you're doing it for the family. In this case, yeah. And what's and what's really interesting about exponential behavior? It's designed uh, for challenging situations where people are isolated in a hostile environment. So that, that, <laughs> that could be the definition of COVID-19, right? We're all, I mean, walking outside was a, was a hostile environment and most everybody was isolated and it's a challenging situation. Um, and so it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, another example of outer space helping inner space or, or the big, the macro helping the micro. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ron, as we start to close this up, um, how can we learn more about you? Um, I, we, we had a great promo video. <laughs> I love that, by the way. I, did, I just didn't realize it was it was um, totally along those lines. But yeah. how, uh, 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 we're going to post your books. Um, I, I, I can't um, recommend highly enough, um, at least the one I read so far, Floating in Darkness. I just loved it. It's such a great read, and it's really well written. But in addition to that, how, how can we learn more about you? How can we support your journey and, and your um, uh, trajectory? Yeah, so um, I mean, I guess the two main websites are rongarin.com and floatingindarkness.com. And uh, as we discussed, we, we can offer, if anybody wants a copy of the book, we can... Uh, on the website itself, it's it's a discounted price, but we could do a further discount of twenty percent if you just use the promo code Dreams. Um, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, just th throwing that out there if anybody's interested. Yeah, terrific. Well, I can't thank you too much for taking time. I know how busy you are to do this. It, it's meant a lot to me, and and I'm so inspired by your vision, by what you're doing, your good heart. It's you're making an enormous contribution to this planet, my friend. And uh, I'm glad to be at least a small part of propagating vision to the earth. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. It certainly means a lot to me. And I'm sure our community is going to just really enjoy what you're sharing. So thank well, you. Well, thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate this opportunity. It was, it was as always, great to, to have a chat with you. And, and thank you for all you're doing. Um, and maybe to put it in space terms, thank you for all you're doing to help make life on Earth as beautiful as it looks from space. Because <laughs> you, are, you are doing a lot. Until next time, all the best. All the best. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a big thanks to Ron for sharing his amazing life story. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings at Nightclub these days. There's a whole lot going on. But until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>